series here, um, continuing, oh, my thing's going crazy up here, sorry, I'm changing slides. Um, as we continue in this series, talking about joy, how many of you would say this week, joy came pretty easy for you this week? Okay, one or two of you, all right, you all had, not, not many of you had those kind of weeks. How many of you said joy was kind of a struggle this week? Being joyful, had to work through that, okay, so a lot of us are on the same page. How many of you would say, oh, as you look over the last year of your life, that joy is the first thing that comes to your mind? As you look at 2020, man, 2020 was a year of joy, right? Woo! Nobody. Okay. All right. Nobody apparently is a homebody who just desperately loved being home and not doing anything. Uh, yeah, 2020 was probably a year where you kind of had to struggle through and fight for joy. Uh, didn't come very naturally. Between the election chaos and COVID, it's almost as if the enemy has robbed our entire country of joy. I, that's one of the things that came to my mind as I walked through 2020 and like, man, as a culture, as a country, almost worldwide, we've lost joy. I mean, this, this is something that was taking place. Think about this. When was the last time that you had a conversation about politics or COVID that was joyous? Have any of you ever had a conversation about politics or COVID that was joyous? I know for me, uh, it's not really occurred. <laughs> so maybe some of you are better at it than me. But that's the reality. And, and, and think about this. When you're out in public, what's one of the first topics of conversation these days? COVID comes up just about anywhere you are. You hate the mask. You take your mask off. You immediately start belly aching about masks or somebody's wearing one. They're talking about it. It's just all over. Everywhere we go is this conversation, and it's a conversation that robs us of joy. Immediately, no matter how good of a day you are having, someone starts complaining about something, and we have a choice in that moment. Are we going to be people of joy or are we going to give in to these conversations and continue to have that conversation? You don't have to raise your hands for this one. How many of us at one point or another were consumed by the election or COVID during 2020 or the last year in general? Paul, who could be consumed with the abuse of his rights the misinformation being spread about him, specifically about him, but also about the gospel, about uh, what at that point they called the way, which was Christianity. He could have gotten on that soapbox and made that his main priority, which is, let's be honest, what some of us have done. Whether it's about misinformation, whether it's about the abuse of our rights, whether it's about this thing or the other, we've allowed that to become the priority and we've kind of put the kingdom on the back burner. But Paul, he chooses not to allow that. He, he chooses instead not to allow Satan to rob him of joy, despite the circumstances he finds himself in. And he says in, later in his letter, which we'll get to in two weeks, in chapter 4, verse 8, we see Paul says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. I'm telling you right now, some of you need to get a post-it note. You need to make about 40 of them and put them everywhere that you go. And to be reminded 
that this is what we should think on. When someone at the gym is belly aching about this, that, or the other thing, for me, it's okay. Think about things that are good, that are pure, that are blameless. Think about the righteous things. Focus on these things. I have a, I have a guy just speaking of the gym who, every time I see him, he wants to complain about his ex-wife. And I, so what I've chosen to do is I talk about how great my wife is. And the, end, the conversations are getting shorter and shorter, uh, about that conversation, and I, I'm not making it up. I'm, I'm genuinely, I, I love my wife. I have an excellent wife, and uh, I just choose joy. I choose to focus on the things that bring me joy instead of the things that steal my joy. And so maybe in the conversations you're having, that's something you might need to focus on. If you remember back before the election, and even now with COVID, there's a lot of these if-then statements that were, that were present and are present. If this candidate wins, then fear this outcome. If this candidate wins, well, fear this outcome. And even now today with, with COVID, if you do this, well, then this happens. Or if you don't do this, then this happens. And it's all this if-then statements. Well, I bring this up because chapter two, starts, uh, uh, chapter two of Philippians starts with an if-then statement. And it's not the kind of if-then statements that we're talking about uh, with COVID, election, things like that. Actually, verses 1 to 4, is all, they're all one sentence uh, of chapter 2. If you don't know, Paul's pretty notorious for his horrible grammar. He was very well-schooled, but for some reason he liked to write extremely long run-on sentences that sometimes would span an, an entire chapter. But all of verses 1 to 4, I didn't actually go through and count them up in English how many sentences there are, but there's a lot of sentences uh, in verses 1 to 4. But it was all one for Paul. But I want to take a look at it this morning and as we open up into chapter 2. Uh, just remember, um, this is all one sentence, but this is Paul's if-then statement. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Again, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, so if you want to follow along in your own translation, you can. If not, they'll be on the screen. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. This is very countercultural, but here we see that verse 1 is the if statement. A lot of questions, is this true, is this true, is this true? Well, if, he's saying, then, verse 2 is that then statement. If this is true, then, he begins to go on, and then verses 3 and 4 are the how-to verses. So, verse 1 is if, verse 2 is then, and 3 and 4, okay. So, if that's true, then this is true, this is how you do this, is what Paul is getting to in the first four verses here. So as Paul asked the Philippian church, I ask us this morning this question. Is there any encouragement for belonging to Christ? You guys seem unsure. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Okay, whew, good. I thought we are going to have to change the direction of this whole sermon, all right? Is there any comfort from Christ's love? Okay. Is there any fellowship together in the Spirit? Yes, you enjoy fellowship here at Dubois Alliance Church. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Not as many yeses there. 
Some of you are unsure. This question is, the last one gets me. Is my heart tender and compassion? I got to think about that sometimes, if I'm being honest. So Paul's saying, okay, if this is true, if you're saying there's encouragement from belonging to Christ, if you're saying there's comfort in the love of Christ, if you're saying these things are true, then, verse 2, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Is this something that we can commit to as a church family? To work together with one purpose. I would love to see that happen. I would love us to be so unified that we were this way. If all of those things are true, if we were able to say yes to all of those, then this should be true. Now, this is one of those if-then statements that I believe the if can be true and the then not quite be true. So Paul says, and Paul knows that as he's writing this letter to the Philippian church, he knows the then isn't always true. So he goes on in verses three and four to talk about how they can do that. How can you make the then true for us? And I hope this morning, if you call Dubois Alliance Church home, you pay very much attention to this because if we want to grow as a church, if we want to be effective in our community, verses three and four is how we do it. We will not be an effective church if we ignore verses three and four. Don't be selfish. We'll just stop right there for a moment. Because church today is so selfish. If we're honest, we come in and we expect things to be given to us. We expect things from the church instead of how we can serve. So it says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Man, church, we messed that up for many decades We put on those nice clothes. We got things just right. We wanted to show up and let everybody know we were good. Everything's good with me. Now our personal life is a total wreck. But man, we show up to church and put on that act. Everything's good. Oh, great brother, great sister. Great to see you. And yet everything's not good. It's all about impressing others. all about showing, well, we're spiritual because we have everything together. Let me just tell you, some of the most spiritual people I know don't have it together very well sometimes. I've seen some people in pretty bad circumstances who I respect incredibly spiritually. And it's that openness, that honesty, that authenticity that shows me, man, this person really does walk with Jesus. They don't have to put on an act. They can be real when they're hurting. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. All right, you might as well just give up here. How many of us are actually going to walk around thinking of others as better than ourselves? of actually looking at others and thinking, I want to view these people, this family, as better than me. Instead of thinking about how much better we are, instead of looking at others and saying, well, at least I'm not that bad. I've not done what that person's done. I've not been a part of that 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 person is. I'm not smoking in the parking lot like they are. And we immediately put that badge of I'm better than them on our chest instead of looking at others as better than ourselves. Verse 4, don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. This is a tough one for us. I've heard a lot of people in church complain as a pastor. I can tell you I've never once heard somebody complain to further the interest of somebody else. 
I've never been caught with, Pastor, I'm just, I don't think our music, I've never had an old person, older person come up and say to me, Pastor, I just don't think our music is reaching the younger generation as well as it could. I think we need to do more. I I don't think our service caters enough to the younger generation. I think we should do that more. Never had a younger person come to me and say, I don't think we're catering enough to the older generation. I think we need to do more for them. I would love to see that because then that would mean we're living this verse out. That we're not just looking for our own interests, but we're actually looking out for the interests of others as well. What I, the ways I have seen this is some of you have come up to me and said, I think we need to minister better to this group of people. What can we do to minister to this group of people? I, okay, you're, you're now, you're focused, especially when it's somebody who's not part of that group of people, but just sees that they need ministered too. I have a question for you this morning, and if you're a note taker, I encourage you to write this down and ask yourself a very serious question. Does your involvement with the church family here, or if you're watching wherever you call church, home, does your involvement with the church family show you are a consumer or a contributor? As you engage with the church, is your relationship with the church that of a consumer or that of a contributor? You've heard me say this before, if you've been around any, any length of time, that we should be, I'm kind of stealing this from uh, Life Church uh, because this is one of their core values, but I just love it so much, that we should be spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. That when we, it, as we engage with the church, it should be, how can I serve more? How can I serve here? How can I give more? And that doesn't mean financially. It means, it, how can I give? Of the gifts that I've given, it, it does mean financially, partially, But how can I give? How can I be a contributor to what's happening here, not just a consumer? The the statistics show that in most churches, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. That shows that most churches deal with the problem of consumers. The people who attend their church are consumers. They're just there to see what they can get from it. I, I hope that's not us. I don't think that's us. Certainly not to that degree. But we're not where 100% of the people are contributors who call this place home. And I'd love to see us do that. I'd love to see us in whatever capacity, in whatever way we, we view that. Until Jesus calls us home, we should be contributors, looking out for the interests of others. As these verses say, don't be selfish. What does it look like to not be selfish? What would that look like for you this week? I want you to think about that. As you go to work, as, as you're home, as you're engaging with, with people, what would it look like to not be selfish in this scenario? Ah, I really don't want to talk to this person. I, I have so much to do. What would it look like to not be selfish right now? What would it look like to be humble? What would humility look like this week for you? What would it look like to look out for the interests of others? And I've got to tell you a story here because uh, I'm hoping we're not like this. Now, if you didn't know, I, this, we wear name tags, and I, I love the name tags. Uh, I didn't get, this wasn't my idea. All right, I've been to uh, more than one church that, have, that has done this name tag thing. Uh, and one of the things that always bothers me to the point where, uh, you know, I'm thinking I want to take the pastor hat off for just a moment is when I've been at these churches and I've heard somebody say, when we've talked about the name tags, and you see, you see certain people that just never wear them, and you wonder why. And I've heard someone actually say, well, I know who I am. I don't, I, I, why do I need to wear a name tag? This is that lack of ability to look out for the interests of others. Because what's one thing that's a blessing about this is anybody can walk into this church, and they know everybody's name instantly. 
And again, I, we've talked about this before. For many of us, we've never had to attend a church out of the blue. We've never had to step into a church we didn't know anybody, where we didn't have any relationships, we didn't have any commonality between anything, we just walk in fresh off the street knowing nobody. Most of us never had that at this church. Because a lot of us have grown up here, we know people here, we, you know, we're, you're from Dubois, and you know people from the area, when you walked in, you knew at least one or two people. And so when one person walks in, if they don't know anybody, they just walk in off the street, immediately knowing everybody's name, what a blessing. And that some people would say, ah, I'm not interested in that. Whatever, forget that. That bothered me. That bothered me when I heard someone say that. And so I, that's just a little shout out for the name tags. Make sure you're wearing your name tag uh, so that we can look out for the interest of others. Just to love other people by saying, hey, let me take that burden off of you. I, I just want to love you in this way. Now you know my name because I can't remember names at all. So uh, you, and if you look around and if you don't know somebody in this room, then you should be wearing your name tag. Because if you don't know them, they don't know you. And if we're going to put the responsibility on somebody else to come know us, man, that's a selfish mentality. It's certainly not the one that Paul's talking about in verses 1 to 4. So Paul goes on to encourage us to have a similar attitude that Christ had. Verses 5 to 8. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So, we should have the same attitude of Christ. Why? Why would that make sense, that we should have the same attitude as Christ? Well, I don't know about you, but I call myself a Christian, which means I would like to be more like Jesus every day. I would love to have the attitude of Christ more every day. Jesus was the ultimate example of humility. We see that very clearly in the scriptures, and this is talking about exactly that. Our hope is to be more like him, so we must become more humble and more uh, of the attitude of Christ every day. Verse 6, you'll see translated in different ways, and we're going to look at that in just a second. Um, depending on the translation you might be reading from or you're familiar with, you'll know that verse because um, I've heard it often. You probably have heard that verse often, uh, but you've heard it in different ways, especially depending on the translation. The reason being, it's very difficult, actually, to determine exactly what Paul's intended interpretation is here. Uh, one of the, you know I love to study. If you know me, you, you know I love to do research. And so one of my, I, I got lost for almost a half a day on this this week. So, uh, but just researching, you know, all the different viewpoints on what Paul's intending to say here. Because this is kind of a, it's a confusing couple verses here. What does it mean? Well, let's look at verse 6. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. I remember back in college, I, I was... Uh, I, I, now I can't think of the word I'm looking for. Exposed, that's what I, I was exposed to this idea of kenosis. It's, that's the fancy term for what we're talking about here. How much of Jesus' deity did he put off? How much of who he was as God did he put off? Did Jesus know everything all the time as he walked around? Was he aware of every single person's thoughts, every single person's history, or did he not know certain things? And, that has to be the case, at least to a little bit, because Jesus himself said at one point he doesn't know when he's coming back. So there's at least a portion of his godness that he puts off while he's here on earth. 
So, and this really fascinated me because I never really thought about that, um, of him being God and man, that he would actually put things off of himself. Now, one of the clear things he put off was the appearance of God. Because we have this moment we call, the, we call the transfiguration where Jesus puts on just a little bit of his glory and he begins to shine and, and the disciples can't even look at him for a moment. That's, who, that's part of his godness. He had to put that off in order to come in a human form. Because even if he came in a human form, he would still have shown like he was God because that's, he's holy. So there's at least a portion of it. So what does it mean that he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to? Uh, I leave that to you to research. Uh, if you like to research like I do, I encourage you to kind of dig into that a little bit from this because we just don't have time to go into all the different possibilities of what it could mean. Understanding, and the point why we're not going to dig into it is because understanding exactly what equality with God is and the meaning of cling to aren't nearly as important as the point that Paul's making in verses 7 and 8. Let's look at those. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. Now, I'm just going to pause there for just a second because that's enough for me. I began to understand through uh, researching this, and others have, have put forth the uh, idea that for Christ to become a human, was it makes more sense for us to become a cockroach. There, there, we have more in common with a cockroach than Jesus has with human beings. Like, that would make more sense. That'd be an easier transition. So just him becoming man, his own creation, was humility that we'll never understand. So just becoming a human was him becoming in, in, coming in a humble position. Even if he came as a king, even if he, he came as the, the richest, most powerful person on earth, it still would have been such an incredible humbling for him. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. The important point here that Paul is making is that Jesus, who is God, humbled himself by coming in human form. He emptied himself of some of his godness, as some translations put it, of some of his godly attributes. The point being that if Jesus, who is God, can come as a human, and die as a criminal on a cross, we who are broken, messed up people, and we can humble ourselves. And some of us will never even come close to the level of humility. None of us will ever come close to the level of humility that Christ has. But yet some of us, we have such stiff necks, and we just will not humble ourselves, even to a, a minute degree. Again, like I said, that story of when I heard that person at that church say about the name tag, to me, I was like, what, really? That's the level of humility you've reached. This was somebody who was much further along in age than myself. I thought, wow, you can't even consider others a little bit more significant to do something so, so trivial. We're broken. Anybody here not, not a sinner? All right, so we're good. <laughs> we're all messed up. We all need Jesus desperately. None of us has any standing before Jesus. If Jesus were to show up today, every single one of us would fall on our face because we just don't deserve to be in his presence. There's only one reason that we'll ever be in his presence, and it's not because of something we did. It's because of him. So what is the result of Christ's humility? Verses 9 to 11. 
Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's just such power in those verses, amen? This is why there is so much power in the name of Jesus, because God elevated His name to be above every other name. That's why the non-Christian world still uses that name to curse and to swear, because there's still power. Even on that side of it, there's power. But if you ever, you ever want to do a test to see how much power the name of Jesus has, go to a crowded place and just say, Jesus! And see how many people look at you. It's a lot different than if you just yelled, Frank! You'd still look weird, but there's power in the name of Jesus. And this is why. Because he humbled himself. It doesn't make any sense. The math doesn't add up here. He lowered himself, and because of it, he's got the name above all other names. That's Jesus. Paul then goes on to encourage the Philippians themselves to shine brightly. Verse 12. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Notice what Paul is saying. We have to, must work hard. Some of us take our Christianity very non-seriously, very, very much like, eh, whatever it's convenient, whatever I have time, whatever effort I, I can throw at God, the scraps of my time and my effort, he should be happy with that. Paul says, nah, huh, huh. work hard. And to obey God with deep reverence and fear. How many of us can say, don't raise your hands, that description fits us. We work hard to grow close to Jesus and we view him with deep reverence and fear. I know some of you this is very true for. I see it in your lives. It should be true of us. As we approach God, there should be deep reverence and fear. Does that mean that we never laugh, that we never celebrate? Absolutely not. That's part of the whole point of this series. Joy should flow from us because of our deep reverence and fear for God. That's who we should be as believers. Verse 13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. What, a, what an encouraging verse for me. I, I, as you kind of feel the weight of having to be humble and needing to look at others more important than yourself, which does not come naturally to us, certainly not part of our culture, all of these things that Paul's talked up to in this point, it's like, man, this is overwhelming. And God is the one working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. That to me, is extraordinarily encouraging. If we're His, if we're God's, we will have both the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. This should be a red flag verse for you. If you can live your life and you have no desire and you completely lack power to serve Him and to do what pleases God, this should be a huge red flag to you. Because this is very clear. If, if we're His, if God is in us, then this comes naturally, the desire to, does that mean that we never fail? Absolutely not. We mess it up all the time. Just because we have the power doesn't mean we use it all the time. But we should have this desire. There should be a burning desire within us to know Him more and to do what pleases Him. 
Hallelujah, we don't have to do it on our own strength. Because I wouldn't make it a day before I did something silly. I still don't generally make it a whole day without doing something silly. Verses 14 and 15. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Oof, that's a tough one for some of us. So that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Again, you don't have to raise your hands for this. How many of us are guilty about complaining about things in church? Yeah. I'll, I'll raise my hand. I'll be the first honest person. You don't have to raise your hands, but I'm raising mine because I've definitely complained about church stuff. Have you ever been in an argument with someone in the church family? You ever walked into a church and seen someone just been like, man, I don't even want to look at them. Don't even come near me. Don't talk to me. I imagine some of you have because we're a family and it happens. Let's not act like that doesn't happen. Like someone here might not want to look at somebody else across the aisle. That might be the case today. These are the tactics of the enemy. And he's good at it too. Instead, Paul is saying, instead of giving into that, instead of giving into the attacks of the enemy that convinces him that people in our church family hate us and they're against us and they're trying to harm us and all of these evil things that we can think up because we determine people's motives for them and getting in arguments and complaining and because things aren't, just aren't the way that we want or we don't like something the pastor said or we don't like something the worship leader said or we didn't like a song they played. Instead, we should shine like bright lights, he's saying. What does this mean? It means if you're able to live an incognito Christian life, you're doing something wrong. You're not shining bright enough. You're not letting your light out like we are supposed to. Does that mean that you just walk around saying, hey, I'm a Christian, hey, I'm a Christian, hey, I'm a Christian? No, that's for CrossFitters. They tell everybody they're a CrossFitter. Okay, let them do that. Some of you don't even know what that means. That's okay. No, that's not how it is. What we should do is live a life where people around us just recognize, man, there is something different about that person. They have something, and it's interesting to me, and I want to know more about it. That's how we should live. That's that bright light shining. And if we're able to live a life where nobody notices there's something different about us, man, we're putting that light too deep down inside and trying too hard to hide it. The Bible never tells us to hide the light, never tells us to put effort into hiding who we are as believers. Now, I believe, especially as, you know, Christina was talking about, we're going to have a couple here who's going to a country where they could literally die if they uh, find out that, that they're there as Christians to spread the gospel. They could lose their life. Now, you've got to be a lot more creative with who you are. However, it doesn't mean that your light doesn't shine. That their goal is to live a life where people begin to ask them more about who they are. That, even in West Africa, where we have another couple, that's the goal, is to live a life where they begin to ask questions and to ask about why they're so different, why they love when they shouldn't love, why they have patience when they shouldn't have patience, why they have grace and this humility and all of these characteristics. That's light shining. Verse 16, hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain, and that my work was not useless. You see here, even Paul is asking them to show, to give proof, to show fruit. Why? Because Paul doesn't want to think that he's run the race in vain. 
a pastor myself, and I believe Paul, I, I, I put that title on him, I think he was a pastor, could not wish anything better for those under his or her care. I can tell you from experience, pastors aren't exempt from wondering if what they do matters. I do my best to get up here and do everything for the praise of God and for His glory alone, but I can tell you, knowing that we're not running the race in vain is really encouraging. Seeing the fruit in your lives as, as you draw closer to Christ, as uh, hearing your God stories of those manifest moments where God has revealed Himself to you and He's done powerful things, it's so encouraging because it helps me know I'm not running the race in vain because I'll tell you, there are some days where I wonder, am I, am I even doing anything? Am I making a difference at all? Is this worth it? Because it's not easy. And that Paul suffered from the same thing, saying, just live this life, cling cling to it. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then I'll know I didn't run the race in vain. Verse 17. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. So this leaves me with a question as I was preparing this this week. has left me with a question that I'm going to pass on to you. What are you willing to give up for the gospel? Are you willing to give up anything for the gospel? And I say that not on the extreme end, but on the very basic end. Is the gospel just a convenience for you? Do you only serve God, give to Him, uh, do things for Him and His kingdom only when it's convenient and when it doesn't require any type of sacrifice? Or are you willing like Paul says. I mean, he's saying, here's my line, it's death. Actually, the line's on the other side of death. I'm even willing to die, to let my life be poured out like a liquid offering to God. If, if it furthered the gospel, Paul was happy to die. He's already communicated that in his letter. And not because he's mentally unstable or unhealthy, because he's mentally very healthy and spiritually very healthy to say, if this furthers the gospel, then by all means, my life is yours. And some of us need to take that first step in that path of saying, okay, you know what? I'm willing to start to give up something for the sake of the gospel. Verse 18, yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. Remember, what they're rejoicing about is the privilege of suffering for Christ. That's what they're, they're not saying, yeah, you should share joy because life should be good, and you know, you should have at least one private jet, and everything should be great with you, and Bank accounts should look good, and family, every, no problems. Your kids are so well-behaved. Everything should be great. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, yeah, you're going to have joy, and I'll share in your joy. What Paul is saying is, you're going to suffer, and I'll share in your suffering, and we'll be joyful as we go through it together. Paul now goes on in this letter to commend Timothy, which he already put in the title, if you remember back when we talked about the opening here. He sees Timothy in incredibly high regard, he, and he actually includes him in the greeting to show that Timothy he considers to be one of his close fellow workers. Verse 19, if the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you are getting along. This kind of tells us, we get a little glimpse into the reality that Paul was struggling, but he had maintained his joy. Because somebody who is extremely happy doesn't need cheered up. And Paul is saying that as he sends Timothy for a visit, that, they're gonna, he's gonna, that visit will hopefully cheer him up because he's going to hear how good the Philippian church is doing. So Paul, it, he does base some of his 
happiness and his joy on the result of his work. And that's, I think, okay. Verses 20 to 21. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. This gives us a little peek into who Timothy is. He's got a very unique heart from what Paul is saying here. His, his love for others and his lack of concern for self are exemplary. This is very admirable as far as Paul is concerned as he looks at Timothy and who he is. Verse 22, but you know how Timothy has proved himself. Like a son with his father, he has served with me in preaching the good news. Not only does Timothy have a unique and caring heart, but he's a faithful servant, Paul is saying. Man, he's been so faithful here. And if you know Paul's story, he has struggled with faithful workers with him. Some have fallen away. Some have completely given up on the gospel. And so his value of Timothy is very high. Verses 23 and 24. I hope to send him to you just as soon as I find out what is going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come to see you soon. So Paul is stuck in prison. He's stuck in a prison cell. He has no answers. Uh, He doesn't know what the future looks like for him. He has absolutely no idea. Yet Paul remains confident that he will see the Philippians again. Even though, got to remember, death is very much on the table for Paul. He very likely could die. All the people in charge of him have to do is have a bad day and just say, you know what? Get rid of him. That's it. There's no repercussions. There's not a whole lot of paperwork needed. He was a Jew under the, under the Romans, and they could basically do whatever they wanted, and they didn't really have to worry about that. Now, Paul's situation is a little bit more tricky because he does have some Roman citizenship, so there might be a little bit of paperwork, but all they would have had to do is have a bad day. And yet Paul remains so joyful and so confident of what God's going to do in his life. In the meantime, Paul intends to send another co-worker, Epaphroditus, uh, so let's look at that real quick, verses, verse 25. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and he was your messenger to help me in my need. So what we do know about Epaphroditus, which is very little, basically just in the book of Philippians is where we see his name, is that he, he obviously brought Paul a gift. We don't know what that gift was, if it was you know a gift basket or he brought him finances, probably a little bit of both brought him some stuff there to help him in his imprisonment because, um, as we learn, because of Paul's demeanor, because of who Paul is, and because of the favor that God pours on him, even in prison, he's given certain liberties. Uh, People can visit him. He's got a little bit of wiggle room in in some of his imprisonments, Um, but we know Epaphroditus brought him some gifts. However, things took a turn for the worse for Epaphroditus, verses 26 and 27. I'm sending him because he has been longing to see you, and he was very distressed that you heard he was ill. And he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died, but God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have one sorrow after another. Imagine this. Imagine being such a close community, loving your church family so much that you get, you get sick to the point where you're about to die and your biggest concern is for your church family, that that's going to stress your church family out. Man, this guy's got a cool heart. He was distressed to know that, they, that his home church found out he was sick and almost to the point of death. Verse 28. So I am all the more anxious to send him back to you, for I know you'll be glad to see him, and then I will not be so worried about you. Paul, like Epaphroditus, seems more concerned with the Philippian church 
than with his own well-being. He's more concerned that the, that the church thrives, that the church does well than for his own well-being. Verses 29 and 30. Welcome him in the Lord's love and with great joy and give him the honor that people like him deserve. For he risked his life for the work of Christ and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. Paul doesn't want the Philippian church to discredit or be frustrated with Epaphroditus. Now, why would that thought even be on their minds? Because, well, they sent him to be a messenger to Paul, um, and he was almost dead. Everybody should understand that. But if you've been in church long enough, you'll know that someone was going to be critical of Epaphroditus. Why? Because he, he was sent there to be a blessing to Paul, and he actually ended up kind of being a little bit of a burden and a hindrance to Paul because he got sick and almost died, and if that would have happened, man, that would have really put Paul in a bad spot. So you can imagine somebody's going to be critical about it, which I think is why Paul is here saying, welcome him home like a victor. He went, he served, he almost died. Now when he comes home, welcome him with open arms and like a victor which is, I think, one of the things we should do very well, especially when we have our international workers in with us, and I think we do this pretty well, um, is when they come home to celebrate the victories they have. Sometimes they're very few and very far between because of the places they're working and, and what they're doing, and we should be a part of welcoming them home like victors, despite uh, what frustrations or difficulty they've had um, in their ministry. So as we close... Humility should be a foundational part of our walk with Christ. That's very clear from what Paul is saying here. If we're not willing to be humble, then we're not going to get very far. As Paul states in the beginning of his chapter, if there is any encouragement from belonging to Christ, if there is any comfort from His love, if there is any fellowship together in the Spirit, if our hearts are tender and compassionate, to sum up what Paul says, then we will focus less on ourselves and more on the kingdom. If these things are true, kingdom will be a priority, and we will want to advance the kingdom of God in any way, shape, or form. That's, why I'm gonna, that's what I'm going to encourage you to do. If you don't know, uh, the way we're ending every service in this series is the same way. We're going to sing a song. We're going to worship God. Now, for some of you, well, if you don't know the song, it's Zach Williams' uh, Old Church Choir. Now, for some of you this week, uh, I imagine this song might come naturally to you because, hey, you've you've had a good week for the one or two of you that raised your hands and said, joy came easy. But I'm going to imagine for a a lot of you, you might have to sing this song in defiance to the enemy. You might have to shout it in his face that there ain't nothing going to steal your joy because you have a foundation in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to encourage you to stand up. I'm going to encourage you to sing. Um, Eric, if you can have that song queued up and ready to play. Uh, you might be a little self-conscious about singing and about celebrating in church because that might not be your comfort zone. But I want you right now to do what Paul says here. I want you to focus a lot less on yourself and a lot more on the kingdom as we worship to our theme song for this series. And I want you to to give a shout praise, a a shout offering. I say shout because I can't sing, so I just basically shout and make loud noises while I stand in front. Uh, so if you can't sing and you want to shout, come stand up in the front with me. Everybody will think it's me. So, uh, but I want you to sing this in defiance maybe to the circumstances you find yourself in, to the frustrations of your week, or to the ways the enemy is trying to steal your joy. Let's worship to this song today. today.
I hope that's getting more effective for you each week, all right? I hope that's sinking in a little bit more. I don't know about you. Have any of you heard this song during the week yet? Yeah? Does it, doesn't it bring more joy to you now? I mean, I'm shouting and screaming it. I just love it. And I hope, even if this isn't your thing, I hope however it is, whether it's through a hymn, whether it's through whatever it is, that you would celebrate and just shout at the enemy or whisper if that's your thing, that he ain't nothing going to steal your joy. Amen. Have a great week and be people of joy.